Good morning. My name is Casey. I'm honored to be here with you this morning. I love our church. If you have your Bible with you, open with me to John chapter 4. We're going to spend the next two weeks um, as Marcus and Wendy are taking a much-needed cruise. You know, they went on a family trip um, to the beach uh, and, you know, had all the family and everything else, and Marcus came back and uh, got COVID uh, or had COVID, and so uh, he spent the fun time at the vacation afterwards recovering from that, and by God's grace, he recovered well. Uh, And so this is an opportunity for he and Wendy to go alone to celebrate uh, their 25th wedding anniversary and their 27th year. Uh, their plans have been thrown off for a couple years, uh, and so we'll be praying for them. So for the course of the next two weeks, I would like to carry us through the Gospel of John chapter 4. And so today we'll go through the first half of chapter 4, and then you're going to have to join us next week to see how it ends. <laughs> to be continued. All right, that's how we hook you back on Labor Day weekend, when you're tempted to sleep in or uh, start grilling a little early right? Resting a lot from your labor. So that's where we're going to get you in. So we're going to be in John chapter 4. In John chapter 3, Jesus speaks to a Jewish ruler named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes in the cover of night to speak with Jesus to learn about the stuff that he's preaching, acknowledging that he must be sent by God. Jesus must be sent by God because of the miracles and things that he is doing. But he so he, he's offering kind of this feedback and this, this acknowledgement of who Jesus is. And then Jesus says something very clear and easy for a Jewish man to understand. For any person to be a part of the kingdom must be born again. Simple. To a Jewish man who's a leader teacher, who's respected as a leader in that religion. And in the Jewish tradition, if you're not familiar with Judaism, uh, Jewish people are born into the faith at this point or converted to the faith by having faith and then being circumcised if you're male and then going through what's called the mikvah, which is uh, full immersion, where, uh, similar to our Christian baptism of immersion. Um, and they go through a mikvah and they're converted to the faith, but it's inherent that it's something that, that's given and to be kept. Jesus is saying, hey, if you really want to believe Belong to God, you must be born again. And if you think logically about it, no one's ever born themselves. They have been born. Jesus acknowledging to this faithful Jewish man that unless God does something miraculous, you will never be a part of the kingdom. And so I thought fitting, as we are launching, have our big fall launch coming on September 12th, launching our Sunday schools, launching our community groups, gospel communities, that it would be good to to refresh us on the importance of the fact that God isn't done with us yet. And and I want to, to fill in some gaps for you. When people typically hear in church, God's not finished with you yet, we immediately go to what? All the stuff we do wrong or all the right stuff we don't do. Right? That's immediately what we do. We go in, inside. I want to burst your bubble just a bit that the Christian faith is a communal faith, right? That you're part of a body, and you might be a bad part or a cancerous part or a dying part, but if Jesus has saved you, you're a part of the body. And so your faith independent, I love Jesus myself, me and Jesus, is actually affecting the body of Christ as well. The main point of today is the point that Jesus shares this woman that God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, meaning connected to the spirit of God and in line with what is true about God, not just good people. He's not looking for people to be morally correct. He's looking for people to be spiritually connected. 
And so with that, you have Nicodemus, a Jewish guy, meets all the standards, all the qualifications, and Jesus basically says, go do the impossible, be born again. I don't know how to do that. Precisely. That's not something you do. God brings new birth. And so now Jesus goes and does the unthinkable in speaking to a woman who's non-Jewish but a Samaritan. And so as I was thinking and praying through what should I teach over this time, as we're launching into gospel communities, one of the things, books that, that Marcus has asked the community group leaders to read is Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt. And Gospel Fluency discusses the importance of what it really means to follow Jesus and help other people to do the same thing in everyday life. How do we help people to follow Jesus, to know Jesus more, and to share and speak about Jesus along the way? How do we help people to do that? How do we help people to grow? How, do, how does the gospel apply when you have a, a child that's disobedient or uh, rebellious? How does that apply when your marriage is so far apart in distance? How does it apply with addiction or disappointment or financial struggles? What does the gospel mean? And the good news for us is that the gospel answers a lot of those things through the Bible, but also through the instruction to the community of coming around people who are struggling. So there's this communal response. And so how does the gospel apply to our daily lives? Jesus goes to a woman who has a grid that's pseudo-Jewish, but the Samaritans have kind of this broken faith structure. And we'll dig into that a little bit more in a minute. But the ultimate point is how I think we've forgotten through isolation, through being bold behind our keyboards and informed from the news channels and isolated from real community of real human beings who have real life and real struggles, we've forgotten how to speak about spiritual things in a way that's actually helpful. And that our little canned responses that we've learned in Sunday school along the way just don't really carry much weight to them. And so what we delude the gospel to is moral behavior correction, fix morality. We're going to fix morality. And if we can't do it, then we're going to vote for people who will do our moral biddings. Which really, church, what we have to acknowledge first and foremost, if any complaints we have against the government, it's because the church hasn't done her job. We haven't cared for the orphan. We haven't cared for the widow in their distress. And so we've abdicated. So... I'm not here to get on a rant either way. I'd probably make people on all sides mad. So that's a coffee conversation around my fire pit where we know we're friends. But here's the question. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is truth, we have a hard time communicating it to our spouses, to our children, to our neighbors, to our family, So how are we being obedient then to the Great Commission? And then how are we saying we're being loyal and faithful to the Great Commandment, to love God with all that we are and love our neighbors as we love ourselves? And I don't know about you, but early on in my faith, when I wanted to tell people about Jesus, I didn't have much content other than, you sin, God good, stop sin, go God. I mean, I was like a caveman evangelist. But today in John 4, we're going to watch Jesus interact with a woman who has some spiritual framework, but he's going to give six different types of appeals to her. And I'm borrowing this with permission from my seminary professor, Dr. Rodney Wu, because everybody's on plagiarism hunt. This this is adapted and formed. But uh, he, with permission, he says, hey, you're paying to come to seminary. 
this isn't mine, it's God's, go use it. And so I, I want to give you this framework because it's very helpful when we're thinking about different ways to communicate the gospel to people in different circumstances. Right? I'm not disparaging the simplicity of sharing the gospel. You are far from God because of sin. And Jesus Christ became the gap between you and God and became the payment by dying on the cross. But sin, death, and Satan didn't have the final say because Jesus was risen from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan. So if you trust in Jesus, you're no longer separated from God but connected to God. I, I, I believe in the simple ways of communicating the gospel when those are open and wanting, like how then can I be saved? But we see Jesus here interrupting a woman's day as she's walking out in a time of shame and isolation and hiding and interjecting in very specific ways, speaking to someone that he as a Jewish man should not be speaking to. And so we have to ask the reason why, and let me give you the answer up front. Because God is seeking people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. John chapter four, verse one. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again towards Galilee. So he was in this place following his conversation with Nicodemus, and the, the Pharisees were like, wow, man, he's outpacing the guy that, that came before him, right? This competition thing. Any way they could kind of bring some division along what God was doing because it was messing up their game, they would go after. And, and so Jesus, it's interesting, in John chapter 2 at the end, for Jesus did not entrust himself to the men and women who were getting excited about his message because he understood what was in a man. And once again, as people were making a big deal and making something out of what he was doing, that wasn't the intent or purpose. He didn't double down and be like, yeah, I'm the man. He left. He moved on. He didn't even engage. He just moved on. And so he went down, left Judea, and went back towards Galilee and in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, and near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And so we see Jesus um, moving on from this competitive environment that he nor John, it doesn't state that either of them were engaging that, um, but he was seeing a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people, be baptized, which in and of itself, asking a Jewish person that, to go through a cleansing ritual, even though they were born into a cleansed faith, could be very offensive, and the Pharisees did not like that because they were God's people, so why would they need to be cleansed? But those who realized that although they might have the right religion, their faith was out of whack. And so their faith, in obedience to faith, they submitted to baptism. And so Jesus moved on from that. Now it says uh, that he had to go through Samaria. Crossing the Jordan to Galilee was a six-day journey. It was actually much quicker to go through Samaria. But many Jews, not wanting to become unclean from the Samaritans, they would actually go the long way around because they didn't want to be unclean. But it's interesting, the Greek word used here for, for he had to be, it had to be that he went through is the same Greek word used in other parts of this gospel aligned with a divine imperative, a divine guidance, a divine movement. For it was imperative, spiritually, divinely, for him to go to this place. There was a divine appointment and Jesus obeyed even though 
being in touch with these type of people was not good. But as we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus never took upon another person's uncleanliness because his superior and pure cleanliness would bring cleansing to all. His authority and power as God in the flesh was not going to be contaminated by the uncleanliness of others. Thank God. He had to pass through Samaria. Literally, it is necessary. And so we've identified some of these barriers going in here. There's a racial barrier because Jews, as we said, viewed Samaritans as half-breeds. And Israel was conquered by, in the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. They fell to the Assyrians and assimilated, intermarried, all that. That's a big no-no if you're not familiar with Old Testament. Intermarriage between Jews and non-Jews, bad deal. Unclean. And so they assimilated and they came together, weren't supposed to. But there was also separation religiously. Um, by this point, the, Samar- the, Samarian- the Samaritans, uh, had, Samarians had formed their own religion, their, their own kind of offshoot of Judaism. So it wasn't true Judaism. It was kind of they took some parts that they liked of it, like some of the offshoots of Christianity that we see today. They made their own religion that was not the correct religion. And so, but they even went to their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And there was also a sexual no-no here in the sense of in meaning male-female, uh, never talk to women in public, especially Samaritans. And so Jesus, sitting here, has a half-bred type woman, female, who worshiped differently in a different faith come to this well. It says in verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So she knew enough to know that you don't do that, right? You don't ask from a Samaritan woman to give me a drink. And Jesus says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And he gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Again, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So the drawing of water was a job that was reserved for women. And most notable, reputable women would go in the morning when it was cooler or in the evening when it was cooler. The women of ill repute, women with bad reputations, would come midday. And so this woman coming at midday, it was already pretty clear that she didn't come with the other folks because of the shame, the social faux pas of her life, which we'll see unpack in a minute. And so she comes to this place, broken, unclean, isolated. 
And the first thing we see Jesus do isn't say, if you were to die tonight, where would you go? I know people have come to faith through that gospel presentation. We call it the shock and awe. But the first appeal he made was an appeal to kindness, to her kindness. He asked her for a favor. You're, it wasn't like, hey, woman, get me a drink. It was, will you please get me some water? And she's shocked by this kindness. It's interesting how far kindness can actually go. And when we really understand our identity of who we are in Christ, and as we strive to live as people who worship by spirit and truth, it doesn't mean we give permission to ongoing sinful behavior and give uh, uh, you know, approval. But at the same time, it also doesn't mean that we run away and scream unclean. Jesus, in fact, was humanizing this woman and saying, hey, what you do is of value, and I need access to one of the fundamental life sources that we need to exist. So he begins there, and she comes to him, and the Samaritan woman says to him, how is that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? This isn't supposed to happen, is what she's saying. Wait, who, me? You talking to me? Wait, what? And so he appeals to her curiosity and he says, hey, if you know who you're talking to, you could actually ask me for water. And the water I give you will spring up within you. And you'll never need to come and fetch water again because the source of life of what you're really longing for, the fulfillment of life, the eternity of life that you're longing for isn't found really in that well. It's found in a person, in me. That source of life, that wholeness, that fullness that you're looking to find in relationships and identity and in religion. And so he makes her curious about this. And her curiosity is just, whoa, where do I get it? Sign me up. No more isolation, no more shame, no more confusion and opportunity. Where, where do I get this? So he gets her curiosity going. I think we've lost the art of learning to say some compelling things. Because we, we leave the, uh, the evangelism and ministry to the hired gun, quote unquote, to the preachers or evangelists. If you're visiting with us this morning, you might be like, who's this guy if he's not the pastor? Is he the pastor here? I'm not the pastor here. I've been ordained as a pastor. I've served many years as a pastor. Um, I've preached the gospel all over the place. I love teaching people the word of God. My wife Stephanie and I love to uh, work with our church family. I'm a Christian man with a gift of preaching that has been called to serve in ministry however the Lord sees fit at a specific time. I am not your hired gun. And if I might be so honest and blunt, because you can't fire a person who isn't yet on staff or isn't on staff, Marcus isn't your hired gun either. You're the one called to preach. You're the one called to share the gospel in your homes. You're the one called to disciple your children and your grandchildren. You're the one to go next door to your neighbor. If you want to bring people on Sunday, come and see. I guarantee Marcus and I and whoever else preaches will endeavor to preach the gospel of Jesus faithfully so that we can be your air support, if you will. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit and you've been born again, you should have something to say. 
that's compelling and curious and inquisitive and not frightened of every person who's living into their inborn nature, which is sin. People are so shocked when sinners sin. Guess what? Sinners sin. And their sin might not be as pretty as your sin, but even if you're in Christ, you still sin. You might have just learned to put some makeup on it. And so Jesus, speaking to this lady, appeals to her curiosity. What if I told you that you could be connected with the creator of the universe, known, loved, accepted, and set free, and it wouldn't cost you anything, any money whatsoever, just your entire life? Huh? Sometimes curiosity is just, hey, has anyone ever told you Jesus loves you? Like, genuinely loves you. And people here today and watching online, I want you to know, Jesus genuinely loves you. It's not because you've been lovable or you've done anything great, but he loves you. Yes, he knows what you did last night, last week, this morning, two years ago, 20 years ago. He knows. And he's proven it. Now, for those whose hearts are still hard and far from God, that might be like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. But you came here for a reason this morning. And so if nothing else, I hope to haunt you this week, if you're not yet born again, with the idea and thought that the king of the universe who made all things, is right to judge all things, and is able to redeem all things, and will one day do so, loves you. No ifs, ands, or buts. And there's a way for you to receive and acknowledge and accept that love by hoping and trusting in his son Jesus. Now, if that's not curious enough for you, how could a perfect, holy, righteous God ever love someone as broken as me? If that's not curious enough for you, that's all I got. But Jesus here, he appeals to your curiosity. He slows down a bit. That's one of the things with my own life that, that's one of the most frustrating things is I'm now at 43 coming to terms with my capacity of what I'm able to do and what I'm able not to do. And in many ways, my mind still thinks I'm significantly younger and significantly more in shape. I know I'm not the only guy that feels that way. There's a lot more I could conquer in my mind than actually happens with this. But that's the reality. And, and, and what if we intentionally create margin in our lives to spend time understanding the word? Jesus wasn't just knows everything because he's God. He was also a Jewish man who had grown up knowing the word and the teachings of God and the, 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 the law of God and the prophecies of God. And he's able then to take that truth and apply it in such a way, even to such a broken and sinful and separate woman, that it draws her in. He gives this appeal to curiosity, and her response is like, I want that. Where do I get it? But then also he gives an appeal to desire. He speaks to the thirst of the soul. I remember one, one of the times I used to travel and speak full-time uh, primarily at youth events, because when you have a faux hawk and you're young and a goatee, that's about all they let you speak at. And then church on Labor Day weekend, they'll let you speak, so I'll be here next week. I won't be able to do the faux hawk by then. 
But I went and I sat with a youth pastor. He was in his 40s at the time. I was in my late 20s. I was in seminary and I had it all figured out. I didn't. We were sitting at some TGI Fridays or Bennigan's or Chili's, wherever places youth pastors go when they want to eat nice. If you've never been in youth ministry, you know that that's, that's more fancy food that you get away with expensing because you have your guest preacher with you. And so I would always let the youth pastor pick where we're eating because I knew they had carte blanche up to TGI Fridays. It's funnier than you realize. Anyway, so <laughs> I'm sitting there with this youth pastor and we were talking, getting to know each other and everything else. And I said to him, I said, hey man, how's your soul? And he looked shocked. And he started weeping. And I was like, I mean, the food's not that good, but bro, it can't be that bad. But he starts crying. He says, no one's ever asked me that, especially here at this church. And he'd been there like eight years. Just that question, how's your soul? Because a lot of people say, even Christians will say, I'm not sure. Or they'll gauge it based on how much sin they're doing or how much sin they're not doing or how much right stuff they're doing. How much. But that's not the point relationally. Do you feel the nearness of the Lord? Or does he feel far away? It's relational first. It always begins with a relationship and then rolls out to behavioral and other lesser qualifying or good needs. How's your soul? And he started crying. He said, no one's really asked me. And I said, to be honest, I don't know. And so I just told him to do more quiet times and to trust Jesus and listen to Christian music, and he was fine. No, I didn't say that. But even in that moment, right, the speaking to that place of, of helping people be aware, like, do you believe that you have a soul? Do you believe you have your spirit? Where is that from? You can speak to people who do, do not know Jesus and say, do you ever think about any spiritual things? No. Well, then maybe you ought to. Well, ain't no thing we evolved from a monkey. Okay. But where does your conscience come from? And move on. And when you come to desire and you start saying like, hey, what if you could be facing really rough things but deep in your soul know that it will be okay? They'll oftentimes ask, where do I get a prescription for that? Doesn't mean you won't feel anxious or stressed. Doesn't mean you won't be afraid. But deep in your soul, there's this peace of knowing that at the end of the day, it will be okay. And, that, and if you read the news and watch what they're selling through the advertising and marketing, and you look at social and you hear conversations, people are wondering, will it be okay? That's a desire of the heart and a cry of the soul. And we have something to say to that, believers. We have something to say when we see stuff happening in Afghanistan to these believers and saying, it is horrible and I wish we could do something to stop it. And I know people that are working to that end, but at the end of the day, for those folks, it will be okay. Because they have found the true King of kings and Lord of lords to worship in spirit and in truth. And he will not abandon them in their time of need. That is the hope that we have. If you're in a marriage that feels unloving or you don't feel loved or in love, the good news is you know the one who is love. Quit looking to the other person to make you love again. Guess what? That's like two ticks without a dog. 
I wish I could love you more. I wish it. There's no real soul sustenance there. Look to the one who is love and acknowledge, I don't feel that. And a good thing he doesn't speak back and say, neither do I. Fortunately, it's more than feeling. It's proactivity. There's this desire in every human being who's been created in the image of God for the divine. Either they just believe they're too smart or too far away or already have it all figured out to really engage in what the Spirit of God is able and willing to do in us and through us for his glory. He goes on to say, and Jesus says in John 4, verse 16 through 26, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right, saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you, are now, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem uh, is the place where people ought to worship. Notice what happened here? We're going to change the subject. Oh, you're religious. You're one of those religious people. Where should I worship? Oh, I go to church. I've been baptized. I've been christened. I went to CCE or CCEF or whatever other acronyms there are in different faith traditions. Oh, I've, I've done that. I've done that. Woo! Let's not talk about that one. Go get your husband. Uh, I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five. And the guy you're currently shacking up with is not your husband. You're just playing house. But you notice he doesn't start bashing her. He doesn't start saying, well, don't you know that that's just a highway to hell? Some of you wicked people have that song playing now. But <laughs> the fourth thing we see happen is there's an appeal to personal interest. He gives her three commands. Go. Call, go call your husband, and then I want you to bring him here. He's honoring the relationship and also exposing the truth. There's no spiritual head in her life because she's had five, and really Judaism only allows for three because they died pretty quickly or went to wars. Occasionally the men would divorce the woman. So in here in Samaria, this woman's had five, and then now she's living. So beyond her being female... Beyond her being Samaritan, beyond her being um, observedly unclean, she's now admitted to being thoroughly unclean. And Jesus doesn't say, well, shame on you. He says, hey, bring your husband here. Bring that guy here. Uh, that's right. You, you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So he appeals to her interest. He says, hey, go call your husband and bring him, bring him here. Bring him with you. But he also then appeals to her conscience. He doesn't stay away from the things that are misaligned with God's truth or God's ways. But he does so in a caring way. He says, you've had five husbands, but he doesn't say, so therefore I'm going to stop talking to you now. You're not worth it. He doubles down. He, he doubles down and says, and he teaches them, right? So he's appealing to her personal interest. Go bring your family back. Let's chat this out. Oh, I don't have a family. You're right. You've had five. And the guy you're with, a train of broken relationships. And, 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 and notice he's not like, well, you must be unbearable or horrible. He doesn't say any of those things. In fact, when he's bringing her to account, he says, go, go get your husband. Bring, your, bring the head of your home here. Let's have a chat. And no one has been properly caring for her, covering her. 
And she changes the subject. And she asks a question about worship. And, and Jesus goes on to say, in response to her, well, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you say that Jerusalem's the only place where you worship. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So here he's acknowledging, he's not erasing the Old Testament. He's not erasing the Jewish tradition. He's acknowledging that the prophets and the law and prophets point to the fact that the Messiah of God will come from the Jewish tradition, the Jewish people. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when tr the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I, I who speak to you am he. Interesting that he makes this declaration to a female Samaritan unclean person, adulteress. He's been avoiding that direct acknowledgement to the Jewish people because what they were looking for is a warrior king Messiah that's going to come overthrow the Roman Empire and bring the Jewish people back into political power. And so he was very cautious to not acknowledge that, and his time to fully reveal that to the Jewish people had not yet come, but he acknowledges it here, I am he, I am the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He is the sent one of God. He is the chosen one of God. He is the ultimate sacrifice for God's saving power and ability to rescue us from sin, death, and Satan. He is the one that is able to do so. He acknowledges this. He's saying, look, the, 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 the appeal to your will is this. The place of your worship isn't the primary place. He appeals to her. The, the, the sixth appeal is appeal to the will. So the fourth one, for those of you note-takers, he appealed to her personal interest, speaking about her husband, bring him here. Number five, appealed to the conscience. And this one is the appeal, the appeal Appeal to the will. If you want to have fun at lunch, say it five times fast. Appeal to the will. He answers your question on worship as he appeals to her heart. The place of worship isn't the conversation. It's not the point right now. The object of worship is what's important. It's not the where you worship. It's the who you worship. That's important. And the Father is seeking true worshipers who worship in the Spirit and the truth. The only way to worship by the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the only way that we are filled with the Holy Spirit is by the supernatural power of God doing so in kindness towards us by His Son, Jesus Christ. And I know most of churches like ours don't speak a lot about the Holy Spirit because it's like a opposite or even side of a magnet for a lot of people either you start gravitating people and we talk about the holy spirit that like they, they kind of go way far and they're terrifying they bring out the ghost side of the holy ghost it could be spooky or it repels people 
so far away. And in fact, the people I've met who've been mature in their faith and who walk in the Spirit and worship in the Spirit, they're not needing to brag about it to everyone they meet. They, they, they in, engage the Lord and they're wise and discerning enough to be able to communicate with people in a way that meets them where they are, much like Jesus did today. The Holy Spirit is alive and well. The Holy Spirit is doing the supernatural work of taking out hearts of stone and replacing with hearts of flesh so that once you were not a believer, you now are able to believe in faith. He speaks to her will saying, hey, will you worship the Father in accordance to his way, his purpose through the Messiah, but also by truth? In the word. So when we get together in community group, we talk about the story of God and, and we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and we see how to integrate it and apply it into our lives. It's, it's for like real world, not just for the spiritual aspect of our life. It's for all aspects of our life. And we have the Bible as our guide and as our, 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 our barrier, if you will, to guide us and lead us. And to be honest, I, I've been to seminary. I, I did my 90-plus hours for my Master's of Divinity, which is an ironic master's degree, which I've joked about before, but I'm now a master of the divine. That seems borderline blasphemous if you think about it. There's still stuff in the Word that's confusing, that's difficult. And so I, I rely and, and am humbled by the fact that God is God and I am not but that I can come then and say, Lord, I, I want to lean in and with the help of your spirit, know your truth and then order my life and my days according to that. And then I have a, a template also when my life's not aligning towards that. But there should bring with it a humility as we walk in the spirit and as we stay in the spirit to be able to call people out, trusting in the spirit of God to do the heavy lifting of changing souls and changing minds and changing wills. So to the Jewish people, their priorities of worship were the where, the how you do it, and the who you do it. To Jesus, his order was who, how, and then where. There, you know, you hear people say, I don't have to go to church. I can worship by myself out in, out in the pasture and all that kind of stuff. And, and like, okay, yes, you can, but you're missing the blessing of coming with other people who are gifted and wired differently than you to engage in this communal life, to be refined by each other, to be challenged by each other. Hey, if you ever want to grow in patience, go to church. If you're feeling really like needing for sanctification, volunteer with two and three-year-olds. Right? And, and, and it's that, that, that refinement. And, and don't get me wrong. Like, I don't think Redeemer is the only place to go or that we have it all figured out by no means. But what I will say is that we are endeavoring to try to worship God in spirit and in truth. And when we're out of whack with the truth side, we try to realign. And when we're ignoring the spirit side, we realign. And we say, hey, we, we, we need you, God. We need your spirit, however you wish to bestow it upon us. And he'll, he's not going to just ignore his people who are asking those types of prayers. He's a gracious and patient father that meets us where we are. But he also comes after our heart and he comes after our will and he comes after our greed and our shame and our guilt. He addresses our fears. He liberates the addicted. He heals the brokenhearted. 
He is able and willing to do all those things. As we gather to worship, whether it's in a gymnasium with an eagle head or in a massive cathedral or in an outdoor worship setting or the small group gathered in our home or in an underground church, it's the who of the worship that really matters. If you're aspiring in life and if your spiritual goal is to be a good person, then you're worshiping what you see in the mirror and not a savior. And the, from personal experience, I'll let you know the savior you see in your mirror will let you down and is not able to save your soul. Let's pray.